2: Danny Dawling and Dawn Foster.
3: I always forget not to clap myself at the beginning, just as a reflex action. Um, so you first published this book a year ago, almost to the date. Why the
0: 1%? The dividing line between us and them, in one way, just numerically, not in terms of class theory or whatever else, but the who's doing better and worse has suddenly shifted to that point. So the Institute of Physical Studies produced a report saying that 99% of people have become as equal or as unequal as they last were in 1992. Uh, People in the top 10% lost their child benefit and so on. You might say, you know, it's hardly a great tragedy. But until the full cuts come through, which are beginning to come through now, you've actually had a narrowing within 99% zooming away within the one percent, and in particular at the very top, uh, doubling in five years of the wealth of the very richest uh, tiny proportion. Um, so it's just a, it's a new cleavage. And if you're a middle class professor, you can try and kid yourself that you're part of the masses because you know I'm I'm not in the one percent. Um, now I'm sure there'll be people who say. Haven't you read anything and that you know anything about divides in society? But it's an interesting time.
3: So, since you wrote the book, two quite politically interesting things have happened. One may be positive, one may be negative, depending on your viewpoint. The first was that the Conservatives won a majority, and the second was that Jeremy Corbyn swept to victory against all odds. What do you think both of those things say about inequality?
0: Okay, um the Conservatives winning a majority was a bit of a shocker. Uh, I hadn't predicted it. Uh, What I had predicted was that the segregation of the Conservative – I do apologise for my nerdiness and the fact I like numbers, but I'm just being honest, that's what I do – I predicted that the segregation of the Conservative vote would carry on increasing. So since the 1970s, popularity for the Conservative Party has risen most in the southeast of England. It keeps on rising more and more in the southeast and in posh parts of London and in Surrey. It keeps on dropping elsewhere. Um, It became so segregated by 2010 that the Conservatives couldn't win enough seats to form a government on their own, even though their popularity rose overall. Uh, So I predicted that that would carry on because we are dividing between areas as we divide economically, that actually happened. The segregation of the Conservative vote actually increased even more dramatically. Nothing to do with Scotland, because there were no toys in Scotland to begin with. So, absolutely nothing to do with Scotland. What else happened, which is partly chance, it's not Lord Ashcroft. Um, you remember he did all those polls and this conspiracy theory, he did the polls to make people you know, not realise what's going on. He's not that clever. Um, or oh, he's super clever, and he can also tweet, you know, but to cover his tracks. What happened? The most amazing thing that happened in that election was that all the opposition votes and lack of votes were in exactly the right place, so the Conservatives could win. It is stunning. Just one fact. Just remember one fact, and then you can turn off For anything else I say. Only one in four of the electorate voted Conservative. The electorate's already depleted because they've brought in new rules to try to stop you being able to vote. And that really matters, by the way, for the new seats, because you need to get students to register to vote. Not to vote, but if they register to vote this October, then the new constituency boundaries will give students more seats in five years' time. You try explaining to young people and private renters in London, you need to register to vote now for the benefit of the person renting in your flat in five years' time. Anyway, one in four of the electorate voted Conservative in 2015. And they won an outright majority of seats. The nearest you get in the history of democracy ever to that is a US president winning about 27% of the electorate and becoming president. So, So I don't think there's anywhere else you've ever had a smaller number of people end up with the party that they supported in power. So it's a shocker, but the point is, it's precarious. You know, it's one in four people of which a large number were shy or frightened and living in (laughs) Nuneaton, places like that. Um, It may have been what was necessary for
3: Corbyn to have a chance, in hindsight. So how much of Corbyn winning, in your view, do you think was down to a reaction to 2015 or was it more a reaction to wider inequality? I mean, if you look at Labour policies, most of them were not that different from the Conservatives, whereas what Corbyn was offering, and he talked extensively about housing inequality and that sort of thing. Was that what helped him or was it just a reaction?
0: I, I, I do think what brought this on was that election feature. I, I think Corbyn has happened five years earlier than you might otherwise have expected. And I'm really grateful it's happened five years earlier because in five years' time, Um, Corbyn and John would be less up to it. And it would be a new cohort of the kind of Owen Joneses who haven't got 30 years' experience of what it's like for the tabloid papers to call you the devil. Whereas the nice thing that's happened out of coincidence is that a couple of relatively old men with a huge amount of experience have ended up being put in a position where they can promote a very large number of younger people into a shadow cabinet and bring them up so that they won't not look strange in five years' time if there isn't some kind of coup or something else occurs. But I, I think it was early. I think it was that election result that forced people to think that they would join or pay their three pounds. They weren't all initially joining or paying their free pounds to vote for Jeremy. They were just going to vote for something, but they cared and they wanted to do something about the situation that was happening. It's once the popularity of him began to rise. And the longer you couldn't distinguish between, you know, Andy and Yvette, I mean, that helped him enormously. If there had been some kind of clear red water between those two, I don't think he would have actually won. Uh, And I don't think his winning is the most important thing. The most important thing is several hundred thousand people decided they could be bothered to go through the effort of joining a political party to help us recreate what most European countries have, which is a semi-socialist, large, mainstream political party. That's all we've got. One of their own MPs. You know, it's not a revolution. It's not somebody coming in from outside. We've just become a little bit more European. We did it early with UKIP. You know, the rise of UKIP made us more European. Any decent European country has a slightly mad, right-wing, nasty party. (laughs) Um, And you can tell I can make up stories, but part of Britain's problem has been the fact that we have an empire and we have been getting progressively relatively poorer for decades. And part of getting out of that is becoming more like a normal European country and admitting that we are, and part of that is having a wide range between your parties, having multiple parties, eventually getting you know, an electoral system that doesn't mean that one in four of the electorate can actually get a majority government.
3: Um, I mean, So one of the things I found very interesting about the book was actually... Um, the fact that money doesn't really make you happy and a lot of the behaviour and psychology of people in the 1% is massively paranoid and damaging. Can you talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah. Well, the idea, people are always very sceptical about the idea that money doesn't make you happy because you all think, you know, if somebody were... Well, it's, relative, it's, it's really interesting the amount of money you say. I was going to say £10,000. Mm. you know, But you may, depending on who you are in the audience, actually £100 would be really useful. Um, or... If you happen to be an older member of the audience who bought a house in London 30 years ago, you may say, actually, £10,000, you know, here or there. Uh, And that's... (laughs) You know, that's how unequal we've got. Uh, All the tests of whether giving people more money over a certain threshold, you know, once you're above £25,000 a year, you you get decreasing returns for your money in terms of any measures of happiness. Um, Within the 1%, I would l- like to do more in this book, except it would have been too hard, and I'm not the person to do it. More about the psychology of the one percent and the problems of the one percent. When people often get very angry if you want to talk about the problems of the one percent. But the issues of you know checking the prenup agreement before you marry anybody, um, or just Christmas. And the 1%, by the way, there's more inequality in the 1% than everybody else. So you're talking families from a household income of 200,000 a year, you know, up to 2 million a year, up to a few at 20 million a year. And you've got to think about Christmas. And Christmas, there you are at Christmas. Can you have an argument with mum and dad at Christmas if the next 30 years of your life really depends on them giving you handouts? You know, How much can you disagree with your parents? What kind of relationship... Uh, do people have in that part of society with each other? Uh, how much screaming is there from children in large gardens in posh parts of Cheshire? What's it like if you know the nanny better than you know your dad? Those kind of things. But I, I, um, I was warned off uh, looking at this side. And in fact, it's very hard to get into the homes of the uh, very rich. They're understandably very, very defensive. Uh, when people do... Uh, the picture is often, you know, not particularly happy. Uh, you really shouldn't wish, you know, that kind of. If you could be born again, where should you wish to be born? In what kind of society you should you should wish to be born? Uh, you want to be at the bottom of the top ten percent. You certainly don't want to be in the one percent. In in terms of, you know, just how stable your relationships are going to be, how many divorces you're going to going to have to go through, how much pressure you will feel. Um, how thousand pounds is absolutely not enough. Um, and when you do surveys of people on different levels of income, the people at the bottom of 10% are much more likely to say that the amount of money they got is enough because they've got some connection with people just a little bit below them. Um, whereas as soon as you get into the 1%, you're into the realm of people uh, who no longer have mortgages, well, halfway up, you know. Mortgages are for the little people, whereas you'll know if you're not in the 1% that mortgages are now an incredible privilege that only the rich can have. I mean, it's a, these are different worlds. Um.
3: Um, thinking of the news this week, especially about the spat between two members of the 1% that involves an Oxford uh, dining club and a pig Ooh. and the Daily Mail, what effect does the 1% have on democracy? And how much, how much is what we saw this week an example of yeah. the kind of otherworldness that wealth brings?
0: Yeah. But, I mean, it's really, Cameron's a point one, and Ashcroft's a point zero, one, not one. I mean, they really do play games with other people's lives in more unequal countries. So it's far worse than the United States, <laughs> where the funding, you can try and crowdsource you can accidentally get Obama in occasionally, you know, it's good. But in, in general, U.S. politics is run by money. In more equal countries, 1% have far less, like Switzerland, you know, which is hardly a you know socialist utopia. 1% have half as much in Switzerland. Um, the control of a few people is, is not so high. And a level of ridiculousness. And the fact you can get into this situation, you know, I mean, it really is bizarre. Imagine, you may not know this, and I should, I'm going to be careful because I'm getting older, but you, you may know that the beginning of the recruitment round for universities starts now, particularly for Oxford and Cambridge, where you have to apply very soon. Imagine if you are starting the campaign for one of these two universities, and you have a whole series of things to go out saying how you're actually quite a normal place, and you know, really, if you come from a normal background, you should apply here, and this goes and happens... <laughs> What do you do with all those videos that you've got ready to put on YouTube in the next few days? let start. It's, anyway, it's not my problem.
3: How many parties at Oxford have you been at that have pig's heads present? Don't ask me
0: that. I've done my fair share of, of um, ethnographic observation. <laughs> Do you know if, if you're a social researcher, I there's a real problem with doing numbers. If you're a social researcher, you can actually get a card from the Home Office that says you're licensed to buy drugs, so that as part of your investigations as to what's going on. Um, I wonder just what kind of card you can get on. Uh, I, was, I was in Oxford in the 1980s, uh, so I am the age of the said young people doing this. Um, it was different in the 80s, it was really weird. It was the beginning of loads of money, which you might remember that kind of thing. And there was a real brash culture at the very top of society. It was the beginning of confidence, from when the Monday Club had to hide in Mayfair in the the late 60s, and there was a bit more in the 70s, and then in the 80s, you know, with flashing wads of cash around and football supporters on on terraces doing that kind of thing, dressing up in dinner jackets and so on... um, you know, it wasn't seen... It, it was odd. And so Oxford was a city of massive clashes. Um, I remember when Olivia died. Olivia Channon? Uh When Olivia Channon died of an overdose of a suicide. Uh, somebody local in Oxford painted their car with a skull and crossbones and wrote Olivia on it. Uh, so much did the locals dislike the university students then. So it was... It was an odd, odd time. Uh, And I suspect now... I don't know. There's a lot more. It'd be really interesting. I mean, the question is, why don't people investigate what's going on now? I always think it's about boarding schools. You know, why do we get all these stories about how people had a terrible time at boarding school and nobody actually says, let's just have a little look into them now so that in 30 years' time we're not uh, saying this. If you want an example of one of these clubs with good PR... Uh, the Pitt Club in Cambridge. So you can just look them up on Wikipedia. Very similar club, tailcoats, all that kind of thing. What's with their Wikipedia page? It says they sponsor a full studentship for some person who couldn't actually get into the club. Um, but so things are changing in some ways.
3: And then still go out and smash windows in after dinner. Places. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if these people have all these wealth but don't necessarily harm each other, harm other people, is it, why is it an issue? So why is it an issue that so many people are getting so much richer?
0: It, it may not be an issue if, if people have lots of wealth and don't harm other people. So in Japan, well, they have less wealth. So there are fewer people paid over a million pounds a year in Japan than in Barclays headquarters in Canary Wharf. I mean, it's stunning. So, yeah, top income is much lower in Japan. But despite that, or partly because of it, People actually save more in Japan than they save more in Switzerland. So the Japanese government can borrow from the Japanese people because they save at such a high rate. If you just save quietly and you never kind of spend it and you use it on your old age and you're shed out, it's not particularly damaging. It's the old Quaker thing. Um, it does it's very hard to find any evidence that it is terribly, terribly uh, damaging to have some wealth inequality. Wealth inequality is incredibly high in Sweden. They're pretty high in Denmark. But income inequalities aren't. Uh, wealth inequalities hopefully will begin to go down there, but it, you know, it's, it's not so clear-cut. The problem comes with what you do with the money. Uh, if you are trying to get a return on your wealth of 10% a year, that essentially requires you to do immoral things, like charge people very high rents for flats in London. If you're trying to get a return of 15 or 20% a year, like some hedge funds, got to do really awful things to get that amount of money a year on, on an investment if you're quite happy with 4 or 5% a year say you're in Germany and you're a pension fund investing in blocks of flats in Germany where people have got decent tenancy agreements then that kind of wealth which actually creates decent housing because they're decent laws and provides you know, a country which was rapidly aging and had a pensioner problem until recently um, you know the, How you deal with wealth changes how damaging it is. I'm not defending wealth inequalities, but there's a huge difference between places like Scandinavia with high wealth inequalities and people like the US with high wealth inequalities. And part of it is the greed that people with wealth wanting to churn their wealth to make incredible returns to get yet more wealth, um, because they worry that other people's wealth is going up too.
3: Do you think there's a see change of kind of feeling towards the super wealthy or do we still feel, feel quite cowed towards Cow. them? I mean, obviously we had a huge backlash against people on benefits that's continuing now and has been going on since yeah. kind of Blair came in really. Well, before then. But have you seen any, any form of change of opinion towards wealthy? depends who we are.
0: The, the, the key question is who's we and which we's matter. Yeah. So for most people, we... Uh, the idea of winning a million on the lottery is still seen as, you know, very good. And people with lots of money are still looked up to and still seen as having somehow they must have done something good to get that money. Most people may not be the most important people. The most important people in the UK may be that group in the 10% but not in the 1%. I mean, this is your senior teacher's. This is your middle management in private companies around here, did it? And I think there's quite a lot of evidence that that group, the group who might occasionally surf a broadsheet newspaper and even less occasionally buy it, or the group who get, how many is it, 70,000 get um, LRB? Twice the circulation of New Statesmen. That group of people they're not impressed by the rich, and that group in Britain have historically been very, very powerful. And when Oxfam says and repeats that the richest 1% in the world have over half the wealth of the world, and it's going up by 7% a year, which means it's game over in seven years' time, you know, which tells you that you're living in a really unusual time because that's not going to happen, people in the top 10% understand these things they also know that their children are not going to get well housed most of them think their children are getting a good deal by paying nine thousand pounds a year to go to university thankfully for jobs like mine so we haven't yet had but once the top 10 percent in society begin to work out that there is no way graduate earnings are going to be high in future 50 percent of young women in britain go to university Now, either we're going to have some kind of incredible sexual revolution where we're going to pay women much, much more than men and the men who don't go, which now the bulk of people who don't go are going to have really, really low salaries. Or your children who are going to Birmingham or Nottingham or even Oxford. Half of our graduates are not going to get high-paid jobs. They're never going to pay the loan back. It's not going to happen. And that doesn't save them because when they don't pay the loan back, the taxpayer's going to have to pay it back, and that's them. And we, making an average median judgment on your ages, we're going to be dead. They're going to have to deal with it. And, you know, we're in a bookshop, so you are talking the best off 10%. At some point, we're going to work out that the generation beneath us, of the upper middle class, are getting stuffed. Uh, You know... If, if something doesn't happen then, I mean, have you all got plans to emigrate somewhere? What 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 is
3: the plan? Um, so how much has the kind of UK housing crisis exacerbated, um, like, wealth inequality in the past yeah. maybe 15 years?
0: 15 years, sure. Um, it's key. I think it's key. I think, again, it's cock up. It's a bit like that election and so on. Um and it's become really important. So the key, the key thing, it was already bad before, you know, 15, 10 years ago. You know, but hey, I'm middle class, so let's forget the poor and let's forget the average. You know, and I'll just worry about me and my family because there's no such thing as society, as I was taught. Um, 2007, late 2007, 2008, the mortgage market absolutely dried up. Right, number of mortgages more than halved. Prices actually went down. We pretended they didn't because our estate agents are very good at this. Uh, but prices really did drop in Britain, in the south of, of Britain at that time. Transactions halved and they stay half for year after year, 2008, 2009, 2010. People still have to move home. They still get jobs. They still go to university. They, you know, they're still, and they're middle class. It's middle class are moving between towns. Working class don't do that, largely and going to Germany for jobs in the 80s. Um, Middle-class carried on moving at the same rate as they'd moved before. But they didn't buy houses because they couldn't buy houses because they couldn't borrow money. So they rented. And the rents began to go up quite dramatically. They went up for people who were not as posh as these people who had normally bought a house or flat. Uh, the landlords made so much money that in the last five years, I think it's $400 billion, increasing their capital, that's the Financial Times and Savills. Savills, the estate agents, Savills are worried about it. And these figures are published in the FT. You know, and if that isn't the top 10% worrying about things. Um, So you've had this incredible shift. So 15 years ago, 7% of families, no, 7% of families privately renting, often very temporarily. Now it's 25% or over in England. In London, it's going up by more than 1% a year every year, um, private renting, you're, you're going, you know, you're heading back to kind of the, the Kensington relationship with your landlord or for people who thought they'd escaped all of that. Um, and you kind of think it's going to end, you know, oh, it just has to end. But there's no reason for it to end if you don't end it. There's a limit to what house prices can get to based on multiples of wages until people start buying houses and flats to rent. The rent in somewhere like Oxford, <coughs> hence most London boroughs, is twice what the mortgage is for the same property. And the rent carries on forever. So the property prices can still go up a bit more, as long as we're heading towards 90% rental. You get used to it. I mean, as you can tell, my slightly lethargic. I've, I've been saying for a couple of years, you know, we've got the highest house prices in the planet that's ever seen before, but hey, we've had the highest house prices in the planet. Yeah, last year and the year before, um, but the one place that was as big as us that had the highest house prices ever and has seen a similar escalation is Tokyo in the late nineteen eighties. What happened in Tokyo in the late nineteen eighties? They crashed and halved. There was a point we've got somewhere to go. Think about Buckingham Palace and make it a bit bigger. There was a point in eighty nine when the Imperial Palace, which has got a lot bigger gardens in Tokyo, was worth more on paper in the whole of California so you you can get to ridiculous levels but we are playing around at those levels and because of that election result, any other election result would have resulted in a dip in house prices they were already stalling before the election, people were putting off purchases because the liberals were in favour of mansion tax, Labour was that election result has just sort of added an extra little bit of gunpowder underneath the, the, the keg for pushing the prices
3: up so when we get a house crash, which I imagine we will inevitably, who gets hurt most?
0: You always eventually get one. Um, OK, this will be the last silly stat I'm going to give you. And this really is an extreme one. But the last country which was the richest country in the world before us was the United Provinces, so what's now Netherlands. And There's been some lovely work done on the Netherlands, in particular on one street in Amsterdam, looking at house prices over time because they look at every
2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: They of every house and they, they compare it and you can actually, for the same houses, you can work out what is going. I think the house prices peaked there in 1675. Okay, so it's not a great analogy. But the interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing is, they then fell on average. For 300 years. (laughs) Um, So, not not massively, but they never regain their real value of 1675. Now, we have more billionaires per head than anywhere else in the world. We are the favourite home of the super-rich. You buy the property here, you'll be paying £1,300 council tax. It's tiny. We have engineered ourselves to become a safe haven. If you're trying to find a parallel... That Street of Townhouses in Amsterdam in 1675. London property now. It's hard to do. But, but two years ago, to name drop, famously, I was in the subterranean basement of a three-bed semi in Mayfair. And it's a normal three-bed semi, but in Mayfair. They dug down two basements. They had a death trap, which they called a swimming pool, at the very bottom, which I would call a death trap. And why would you want... Anyway, it's a free bed. bed, Sammy, and the estate agent is there because the estate agents love their stuff to be shown on the BBC, and Rob Peston's there talking about the housing market. And, and I just said, absolutely naively, I just said, even if you painted every wall with a layer of gold about half a millimetre thick, it's still not worth 25 million. At which point the estate agent said, cut, get out. LAUGHTER um, I, I just now, you know, I, the more you stoke it up, the more precarious it becomes, the more chance that sentiment goes at some point. Investor sentiment goes, as it did in 1989 in September. Um, and we don't get a soft landing and a cooling down. We get a, suddenly, your rather successful middle management in the middle of the 10% in London, the only people who can buy and can buy at very low interest rates, which means, hey, you can borrow £800,000, just decide not to borrow £800,000, just wait a month. minute that happens, that's, that's the point. Um, and you just don't... It's like trying to predict earthquakes. You don't know when, but you know the longer it carries on, the more the stresses get, the bigger your earthquake is.
3: So how do we remedy this?
0: Um... I'm a mild-mannered, slightly prophetic bloke over this. you know. You
3: know I well, give me two options, the nuclear option or the mild-mannered... <laughs> OK, I'll give you two. Option. Let me start with the mild...
0: You know, the mild-mannered is you tell people about it, you warn people about it, you say, you know, soft landing would be desirable. You know, internally reform the Labour Party. Please have some policies that realise that you've become an outlier state and, you know, so on and so on and so on. Can't we be a bit more decent to each other? Um... That's a mild-mannered, which is, is my normal line. The nuclear isn't actually us. So the, the nuclear happens to countries. If you look at the history of countries and inequality, you can see sudden points at which countries become more equal. Uh, the biggest is losing a war. Japan and Germany losing a war. Uh, but it's almost always, <laughs> for a rapid increase in inequality, a catastrophe. Portugal and the housing crash in Portugal. The poor were dirt poor already. Portugal was the only country in Europe that's more unequal than us five years ago. It's now much more equal, but poorer. Um, so catastrophe, of which I've got two for you. Go on. Uh, one is we vote to leave Europe, and market sentiment goes, and we've suddenly become a much, much poorer country because we don't realise the effect of that vote, which, if you want revolution, might be a good thing. <laughs> you know, if you're really kind of, conspiracy fears about it. you go, let's vote to leave Europe because then business will lose interest in Britain. Um,
3: so you join UKIP to... You
0: join UKIP to progress. This, this, is, a, this is a theory that you know, Gideon Osborne was actually a member of the Socialist Worker Party and changed his name to George and, and to speed up the revolution brought on the end of capitalism by, by bringing absolute miseration back to people in food banks. Um, so one is, one is the EU vote to leave. Uh, the other, which I, I'm happy with was being more obvious... Uh, could have happened last year. It's a Scottish independent vote. Yeah. And suddenly you've got a tiny country with a really weird currency called sterling, which hasn't had a run on the currency for years, which no longer has any oil. Forget the fact how much you think the oil's worth. What else do you think we have? That So Scotland leaving, or else leaving the EU, um, for you know, a potential of a rapid shift. Uh, you can deal with rapid shifts. It's not... Yeah. At the end of the day, people just need food, they need shelter, they need some kind of order. You know, it's not about an earthquake or tsunami, you know, but we're so English that the idea of a property price crash you know, is almost worse to us than the idea of Godzilla coming in. <laughs> you know, but you know, All the housing will still be there. We've we built another 11 million bedrooms in the last 10 years. We've, have, we've got more space in our houses and flats than we've ever had per person. So you you can deal. We could deal. The worrying thing is, if you look at two countries that did deal with an emergency recently, uh, it's the United States and Hurricane Katrina, and Japan and the tsunami. Japan dealt with the tsunami brilliantly. Uh, You ran out of things for the volunteers to volunteer to people. And as you know, the U.S. dealt with Katrina in a terrible way. And the worry is that we're much more like the U.S., um, So we wouldn't do the obvious, which most European countries did when property prices crashed. Eviction was made illegal in most countries, made legal in Greece, it's illegal in Ireland. Can you imagine making an eviction illegal? Eviction rates, you'll know this, in London have doubled in the last 12 months. And if you're evicted, you've not only got to pay the £125 court cost, you've got to pay the bailiff. you've got to pay for the privilege of being evicted, 400 quid. And it's doubled. I think it's thirty thousand families last last twelve months, and it's zooming up.
3: It's almost a thousand a week in London at the moment, apparently. So I think the two takeaways from this talk have been wait for disaster and join UKIP. So now we're going to open it to the floor. So if you'd like to ask a question, do put up your hand and please stand up so we can see you. Do we have a roving mic or do we have we have a roving mic? Technology is brilliant, and like our house prices. Who has
2: questions? Oh,
0: here we go. Hi. I'm Mike from Yorkshire. And uh, do you have a, do you have a statistical a law, Danny, about how bad inequality can get? I remember years ago, Ivan Illich said that uh, when, when 10% of the Russian people get telephones, then the Soviet system will collapse. I'm never, never quite sure whether that works out exactly, but he was sort of on yeah. the line. So, that's maxima. So, so the world maxima, which, the maxima in 1913 uh, was about the 1% have 20% of all income, which is where it's got in the US at the moment, and it's dipped. Obama has increased taxes, uh, so it's actually dipped there. Um, we are about 15% of all income that the 1% are taking, one and a half NHSs a year, or the equivalent of 1,100 royal palaces they're living in. Um, yeah, so forget the expense. I was... The entire dozen royal palaces. Um, so we're about five percent off the maximum that's ever happened. But we are currently, if I really want to depress you, I don't want to depress you because it's that extreme, and people know about it. We've got some semi-decent figures from 210 and 215 about inequality in the richest countries on the world. If you draw a straight line between them, so it's only two points in time. Guess which country wins the global race and is the most unequal by 2025? Does. <laughs> right we're we are on course to win the global race and overtake the United States and be the most unequal country because of our increase in inequality it's uh, It is very unlikely to happen because it requires a, a huge amount of stupidity amongst people just beneath the one percent um, who are not going to benefit from what 's going on but it is bad news you know you can 't really disguise it our, our current Levels of inequality are really bad news. They're causing young people to behave in very, very odd ways. They're making them flee to universities. It doesn't matter how much you charge, you can charge £90,000 a year. They'll go. Because what the hell else is there for them to do? It's causing them to take jobs they do not want to do. This is my sympathy for people at the top of society, but that's the people I know, you know. So rather than become a teacher or an engineer, they go and take a job for UBS. You know, a soul-destroying thing because they might be able to get a mortgage, not on a three-bed semi in Mayfair, but a three-bed semi in Brent in 10 years' time, because they might be able to start a family. Right? And this is what people could do in the, in the 70s before. It's really bad, but, you know, when things are this extreme, they, they hardly ever stay this extreme for very long. Um, so I would, I would worry much more about. What's the mechanism to cope with the end of this? How do you worry about people at the bottom so we're not evicting them? Um, how do you convince the Labour Party uh, to have a pledge just to say in five years' time we will have no food banks, you know, which they wouldn't pledge to before the last election? I suspect they won't find it that hard to pledge. You don't have to meet your pledges. Just say you've got an aspiration. <laughs> just saying you've got an aspiration that nobody should have to go begging to a food bank, which we didn't have hardly the end of fifteen years ago. See, so, uh, and by planning for the beginnings of recovery, and this isn't towards becoming Scandinavia. You know, other than the Americans invading you and imposing equality on you, as in Japan, you don't become Scandinavia overnight. This is just trying to be out of the top five worst cases and we need to talk about what we need to do to get there uh, when we've got less and less money and when we're almost certainly going to have less and less money but money's not a problem when it comes to inequality um, in fact having less and less money is beneficial because the 1% and the 2% and the 3% are incredibly expensive in unequal countries so when you find you've got less is one of the times it makes even more sense to reduce it. Um, When you have an economic boom, you can kind of get away with inequality because the people at the top can take the lion's share of the boom but still give some crumbs to people at the bottom. But we haven't had that since 2007. Yes. um, I'm in the process of objecting to a a planning application which has been made to my local council by by a property developer. They plan to build a, a very large retail complex with with only a very few uh, residential units yeah. and with no provision at all for, for social housing. I'm making the usual objections and I'm doing the usual things, but I just wondered if there's anything you can think of that I can say to pitch my argument more efficiently, better, to actually Make them take some notice. Yeah, about why this is... So they're building a little bit on the Section 106 agreements, <laughs> yes. uh, but not much. Um,
3: you I, know that the Section 106 agreements were recently kind of basically scrapped in many, them. many places. Yeah, they got rid of them. Section 106, just so everybody knows, other than us two nerds here, yeah. is basically the, um, the every time somebody builds uh, a new development in a... In, in, in a borough, they have to make sure that some of the, that either they build some social housing as part of it or they give some money to the council for them to build a GP surgery, a park and that sort of thing. And it's one thing that property developers have been pushing back on massively. And one thing that a lot of London councils are very, very happy to fall over on because Eric Pickles basically kind of watered <coughs> down everything. So. Yeah, But it
0: was, it was a tragic way in which we used to do things. So it meant at least you could do something. But you only had any money to build anything if a developer came along. And then you could get some crumbs. And now the crumbs are going. Um, I walked along Kensington High Street early today, and five people stopped me. And this is me. Okay, look at me. Five people stopped me outside shops, Kensington High Street, to get me to try to come into their clothes shop to buy clothes. <laughs> um, we've we have an enormous amount of retail space in Britain. Retail space is very closely related to inequality, asset advertising, as is spending on clothes and other items. But it, when you say retail, it will be clothes. That's half of our retail. Uh, the average item of clothing in Britain is only worn 12 times. Very successful economically, not brilliant for the planet. Um, but I don't, you know, these kind of arguments appear so esoteric to a counsellor. Uh, one other way is to, is to ask them to think about the long term. Counsellors tend to do, be a counsellor partly for ego and their legacy. And if this thing is a white elephant in 10 or 20 years' time... Because we somehow get out of a situation in, in which our country is being taken over by cloak shops and we're trying to convince people to get into more and more debt, there you know, was it 1.4 trillion personal debt uh, to buy these, then your legacy of the council will be that building is your fault and it's rather hard to change a retail centre into housing. Uh, it's quite easy to change them into prisons actually. <laughs> um, they're, they're often built to the same design. If you think about, so corridors, landings, cells. Um, Meadow Hall had dual purpose. <laughs> it connects to Sheffield. Could have been another prison if it needed to be. Um, so I, I would say it's a white elephant in your legacy and go for the ego. Um, a, and councillors do things based on, on that. A lot of our music, this whole swimming pools date from 1973. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? Actually, in London it's 1964. Because um, the last gasp act of many councils, when they were being got rid of and the new councils were coming in, was let's spend all the budget on the swimming pool. Because it's something to be proud of and to remember. And, you know, they lasted 40 years. Do you want to be remembered for yet another shopping centre? Um, you know, and should their names be put on it?
3: You know? feel really proud of the local H&M. <laughs> Yep. Um, have we got more questions?
0: <coughs> ah, yep. Ian. Uh, the usual
3: Tory argument is the trickle-down theory benefits yeah. those at the lower end of the scales. I can't tell the number of times I've heard that reposted.
0: Is there any? What's the best way of re- re- refuting it? I've um, actually
3: heard it less and less, or so is that something you found as well? Not in my circles, I'm afraid. Moving
0: my circles. The way i do a future is, is a bit odd, but I'll give it you, it's <laughs> worth trying. Uh, we know trickle-down can't work worldwide now. That's agreed by the OECD and the other know It's just gone. But it could work in one country. Theoretically, you can have trickle-down in one country. What you've got to do is to have the lowest property taxes in the world have a whole set of other laws to protect the interests of the rich and get them all into your country. Rather like Camelot winners. The average Camelot winner generates, for a millionaire, generates six jobs, including a personal beautician. Um, Camelot actually publishes as a good reason for having a lottery. (laughs) It is six jobs. You can have trickle-down, like Monaco has trickle-down within Monaco. We could have trickle-down just in the UK. And your children can be chauffeurs... And nannies and cleaners, and I can work in a high-polluted university for people paying an enormous amount of fees, but, you know, whose parents buy an investment property in my town, so my children can never live there. <laughs> so we cut to trickle down from work in one country. That could be our future. It's an option, it's the boy's option. And our children and grandchildren can be servants. Um,
3: the Greens had uh, a wealth tax in their 2015 manifesto and continue to have one MP. Um, notwithstanding your recent comments, do you think inequality uh, in Britain is the sort of issue that really will one day decide a general election? Uh,
0: yeah, I, I don't think it will come under the name inequality. Um, I mean, you could go back and you, you could go back to when Labour had one MP and then when Labour won election in 45. Uh, um, The word inequality doesn't work. It's rather like my, you know, please go out there and start a voting campaign to explain to people to register to vote for the benefit of the people who are going to be there in 2019. Although, you know, it kind of should work for university students because they're supposed to be clever, but um, it could work. So it doesn't work with the word inequality. It works with the word housing. Uh, If you just say, you know, we don't even want affordable housing, We just want some kind of housing, you know, that we can live in, even if it's 50% of our income, it should be. So, rather than talking about inequality, you talk about its most important manifestation for most people. So, not about unemployment, not about poverty, not about the effect it has on the education system, which only affects parents and children. Everybody has to be housed. And for everybody, and even a majority of landlords... Most land about six percent of people. Shall say two? I think it's six. Six percent of people are landlords. Most of them are amateur landlords. They're having a really bad time. They only own one property under you know right to buy. Uh, they're useless for being landlords. Of course they are. Nobody trained them in landlord school, um, and they don't even collect enough rent and so on. It's only the housing situation is only benefiting. A small proportion of landlords who've got multiple properties know what they do and don't worry about not fixing things when they don't work, because that's how you make a profit and return as a landlord. Uh, It's benefiting people with no children with property. It potentially is benefiting people with one child, but not two, because you've got to split the inheritance two ways. It's benefiting a few people with multiple ownership, like you know Tony Blair. Forty-five
3: properties? Forty-five. David Cameron's only got five, I think. Oh, dear. Poor dear.
0: Poor dear. Yes. Um, yeah, but housing, just housing. Every, every day, you can't solve housing, um... Well, you, you could build over the parks. It's, if you want to keep our degree of inequality in housing and solve it by building, you're talking an immense amount of building over evergreen space left in London. Um which other people would oppose. So that's, the word inequality doesn't work, but there would have been words in the past um, you know, for an inefficient form of production. Uh, or, does anybody remember rectify the anomaly? No. No, exactly. Uh, it, it, it was the trade union for university lecturers complain about their salaries. It was a rectified anomaly, yeah. Yeah. which is n- not how you put it.
3: <laughs> we got more questions.
0: Yep. George Osborne made some changes to the buy tax rules. Mm. I mean, were they s- significant in the real world? Yeah. No, well, we may we may look back and say George actually began it. He did the same with capital gains tax with Nundoms. So, from April two thousand and fifteen, <clears throat> any gain you make, if you for those of you in the room who are Nundoms which is it's a good place for nondoms to come. I mean, this is where nondoms need to come to work out the risk. Yeah, and if, you, if you, think, you think, he's prattling on, nobody believes him, carry on investing in London. Um, any profit you make on capital gains is a DOM, unless you create a, a good enough form of hiding it, which George Oswald still left, left in, ways five it, You'll have to pay higher capital gains tax on property. Uh, the right to buy change is enough not to put landlords off buying, but it's certainly going to take a bigger take from them. Um, the Conservatives are beginning to do one or two things, um, partly because you just need the money, partly because they must begin to realise that this in, is in danger of really scuppering them. Osborne was in charge of the election and the economy, and the way to win the election in 2015 was to get house prices high and rising all the time. Conservative voters do not go out to vote when house prices fall. So when house prices fell in 1990, 1991, the Conservatives were wiped out in outer London boroughs. Just they stay at home; they don't go and vote because they get very upset. Um <laughs> <laughs> they, they, Crying they, into the they catalogs. <laughs> increase house prices, and in Dunedin, you know, increase house prices, and people will talk down to the vote poll and tick the box, you know. For it. so it made a lot of sense that every major measure of his budget from 2010 to 2015 was designed to escalate the housing market right up to the you know spend your pension pot on a, on a flat you can rent somebody it now makes sense for Osborne to try to cool this thing down because you really don't want the crash on your watch particularly in
3: 2018-19
0: mm. um, so I, you know but how able are they you know, I've never been convinced they are that understanding of how the increased likelihood of a crash is, the higher the price goes. Um, I do worry that Osborne and Boris um, kind of sit there thinking, oh, we could have another five years of this, and, you know, London house prices could double. There have been projections, Oxford Economic Forecast, mm-hmm. so the million pound average house price for London, I've forgotten by when, 15 years, I think. even the rest of the super rich the world moving in doesn't get you to a million even landlords buying every last house in London doesn't get you to a million because you can't pay enough rent to give them a return on a million (laughs) pound from an average London house right aliens arriving from space is the only way that it's a new kind of form of super rich immigrants I, I can't you try and tell me how the average house price in London could get to a million and be sustainable I'm a geographer, and maybe Oxford economic forecasts are very clever. But it just doesn't. A million. It doesn't work for an average price. Barkingham Dagenham is now at Oxford prices. You know, it has. Oh,
3: sorry. I look forward to the Daily Mail page about the super rich immigrants coming from space. But I'm just going to close this on one question, and you're going to get annoyed because it's all about stats. Tell me how much it takes to be in the top
0: 10%. Oh, income? Yeah. Okay. Um, you're
3: going to do this all of them, so.
0: You're going to do it all four of them? Okay. Uh, this is nationally. Yeah. So this, this is for the UK. Uh, if you've got a household income of around about 40%, uh, you're in the top 10%. Sorry, £40,000. Uh, maybe 50 if you've got kids.
3: What about the top?
0: 5%. Top 5%, you are looking, I'd say, about 80,000, maybe 70. So two people on 35 each will sound quite low. The median Oxford income is 21,000 for somebody working. The mean's 27. You know, So you've got to have two people working.
3: I like this. It's like rubbish mastermind.
0: 1%. Uh, 1% is easy. It's 160,000 without kids and 200,000 with kids. 0.1%. 0.1% um, is, I think, about three and 50,000 a year.
3: Okay, well... No. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or, or, or spare wealth of the are on her. Yeah. <laughs> um, well,
3: uh, thanks for all your questions and thanks to this great event. We'll be sticking around for a bit to sell and sign copies of the book. And it's now been printed in blue, white and black, instead of green, white and black, to celebrate the Conservative victory. So let's all give a big hand for Conservative victory.
0: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.